Hello and welcome to Stupid Sequence, the show where we make ranked lists of things that don't matter because arguing with your friends is fun. I'm your host, Josh. And I'm your better looking host, Scott. That's debatable. Uh, We're at episode 28 this week and we'll start with a quick summary of what the show is. The goal of each episode is to create a ranked list of something, usually media related. Scott and I will pick a topic before the show and each can prepare to the list of 10. In the first segment, we'll talk about items 10 through 6 from each of our lists, why we feel they fit the list, why they're meaningful to us, or maybe some interesting facts about them. Hmm. In segment two, we go over our top fives in more detail, and then to finish things off, in our last segment, we briefly mention any honorable mentions we have before going head-to-head and arguing over which items belong on the official top ten. This week, our, uh, our, our topic that we're discussing are the most culturally significant inventions created between 1900 and 1950. I feel like I used the full gamut of those years. Yeah, I I have quite a bit of variety here. I have a 1950, even. Mm, I didn't quite get that close. We'll talk about it. 1903 to 1945 for me. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Zero inventions in the 30s, I've noticed for me. Hmm. Nothing nothing from the 30s made my list. Great Depression. Uh, yeah, that's, let's see, interesting, yep, nothing from the 30s on mine either. Looking at my honorable mentions list, there are a couple of things in there, but. I was lazy and I did not put the years down for my honorable mentions, but hey, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Sure. You want to get right into uh, it? Yeah, well, I guess before we before we dive in here, um, we'll talk a little bit about our our logic here for creating these lists. Yeah. For me, so we decided this was not best, not most important. This is culturally significant, most culturally significant. And so, what I decided that to me, what that meant was having an impact on culture specifically, having an outsized and lasting impact on culture. That doesn't necessarily mean hey, this made, uh, there was a media thing based on this, or this was a form of media. It could be a broad, it could be broader than that. It'd be affecting culture in the ways of like how people live their lives and things like that. But different than historically important. Yeah, I would say that's true. And that's certainly how I viewed the list as well. I had a, a fairly similar thought process. And even when discussing it with my wife, trying to pare down my list a little bit, I, I also emphasized to her that this was cultural significance. So mm. where does it actually stand? And, I, you know, we got there. We agreed yeah, on I, several. But I think for me, my, um, I kind of ended up, I, I think I have some entries on my list that might end up surprising to some folks. Hmm. I think I have one that you did not even consider, but will concede to me. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Well, why don't we dig into it here? Uh, so segment one, we're doing 10 through six. So Scott, why don't you kick us off with your number 10? Number 10 in the 1920s. I believe it was 1920 specifically. The American Professional Football Association was founded. Interesting. So maybe another one you didn't even consider. 
when it comes to this, right? So the National Football League, the NFL, was founded in 1920, but it was originally the American Professional Football Association. Had 10 teams from four states, all of whom existed in some form as participants of regional leagues in their respective territories. And among the original stars at the time was athlete Jim Thorpe. For those of you who don't know who Jim Thorpe is, he was considered one of the most versatile athletes of modern sports. He won two Olympic gold medals in the 1912 Summer Olympics, one in classic pentathlon and the other in decathlon. He also played football, both collegiate and professional, professional baseball, and basketball. Yeah, pretty phenomenal athlete. So nobody does that anymore. No, no. Uh, I think maybe a semi-recent one, like Deion Sanders scored a touchdown and hit a home run in the same week. That was pretty cool. Uh, on top of that, so the league took on its current uh, name in 1922. The NFL was the first professional football league to successfully establish a nationwide presence. After several decades of failed attempts, uh, only two founding members are still in the league. The Decatur Staley's, now known as the Chicago Bears, and the Chicago Cardinals, founded in 1898, joined the NFL in 1920. Now the Arizona Cardinals. Those are the oldest NFL franchises. Where so, that they went to Arizona? Yeah, right. Uh, well, it's because of the arrival, the rival American Football League was founded in 1960, and it was very successful, so successful that it actually forced a merger with the older NFL that resulted in a greatly expanded league and the creation of the Super Bowl, which uh, has become the most watched annual sporting event in the United States. So the league continued to expand to its current size of 32 teams and a series of labor agreements during the 90s and increasingly Large television contracts have helped keep the league one of the most profitable in the U.S. and the old, only major league in the U.S. since 1990 to avoid a work stoppage that resulted in the loss of regular season games. Now, I, I think everybody in American culture knows at least a little bit about football or can peripherally say it affects their lives in some way. Even people who don't go to or care about football and anything in the regular season they go to Super Bowl parties. It just right. it happens. Super Bowl is 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 a, is a cultural event to be certain. Massive, but on top of that, right? There's fantasy football, Monday night football, Thursday night football. Sunday is always football day, and then you know, obviously the Super Bowl, and then even in, it's expanding into other countries. We've got games in Mexico City, London, Germany. It's it's having a pretty significant impact. Everybody in the world knows who Tom Brady is. It it just Re- regrettably. Yeah, well, okay. Either way, I think it you'd be it would be tough to deny the cultural impact that the NFL has on American culture as a whole. Sure. And so for that reason, this was invented during that time frame. I made it my number ten. Yeah, I, I had not considered the NFL at all. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and honestly, if we were to say that this was exclusively American cultural significance, maybe this might rank higher. Yep, I think we were we were talking about global cultural significance or just yeah humanity, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. That's why our, our it's views, not higher on this list. Our views, our our biases are naturally gonna uh, skew a little bit more towards Western culture, you know, um, given mm, our sure. backgrounds. <laughs> um, sure. But definitely not just America is our consideration. Yep. I wanted to put this higher. Obviously, I'm a pretty big nfl fan shout out to the lions one last night good job lions three and one looking great what's your number 10 
My number 10 is Baseball. not the NFL. Oh, okay. Nope. Baseball is older than yeah, older than 1900. Uh, I do like baseball more than football, though. Um, my number 10 is the microwave oven, which was invented in 1945 by one Percy Spencer. We have a duplicate. Oh, really? Interesting. What's uh, what's your microwave oven ranking? Number eight. Okay, so still fairly close, but yeah, yeah. Nothing. Not significant enough to peak, peak the top five, but... Yeah, it, it's it's an important invention, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, my notes here, I don't have a ton of notes on my, my 6 through 10 here, mostly. Um, this was actually developed on accident. Yeah. Um, Pretty awesome, is, actually. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a long, long history of accidental inventions in, in human history. Uh, there's this a couple one more on was, my list. They had uh, a, uh, he was working on a microwave radar array and then noticed, wait a minute, this is producing significant amounts of heat. Uh, so then he thought, well, what if we could use this to cook food? And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, More specifically, the chocolate bar that was in his pocket melted as a result of that heat. Yeah. And yeah. so we put popcorn kernels next to it and it fluffed into popcorn. Yep. <laughs> That's just like it's comedic. The the almost the reality of that situation. You you can't write a better story than that. Yeah. How long till they realize maybe I shouldn't be standing here? <laughs> you know. Um, well, the, the the first model of uh first models of microwave oven that uh were built were uh absolutely huge, six feet tall, over seven hundred pounds. Yeah, that's uh very big. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and is, they they also had a five thousand dollar price tag, which yeah. at the time was very expensive. Yeah, very. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's in, you know, nineteen forty five dollars, which we'll talk about some inflation stuff and costs of things on mm. some items on my list anyway as we as we go along here. But yeah, these these did become they 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 dropped in price pretty quickly and they did become popular in homes. You know, pretty close to after the end of World War Two. So they they started becoming, you know, commercially viable pretty fast. Right. But mass adoption wasn't really until the 60s. That's when people started really getting recipes or feeling like they were contributing to the meal still. But it also, you know, transformed the restaurant industry in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. Yep. And, and I think it was the impact that happened later the fact that it wasn't really commercially viable during that time frame i mean it still happened and was invented during that time frame but not not as big i think during that time frame sure then i made a little bit lower on my list but you know eight ten fairly similar we could probably split the difference and call it a day yeah that's a, a definitely a very very important and very culturally relevant invention yep in fact i use mine i don't know not every day but a few times a week, at least. Sure. I think yeah, it definitely. gets used every day in my house. My yeah, I have are... fewer people in my house. That's probably not true here, but definitely multiple times a week. Sure. You want me to well, go to my uh, number nine? Yeah, let's hit your number nine. Cool. In 1907, synthetic plastic. Okay. So, and, and it was invented by Leo Hendrik Bakeland. So the first commercially used synthetic plastic was known as... Bakelite. Right. So he invented Bakelite in 1907. He made it by combining phenol, uh, a common disinfectant, with formaldehyde. And Bakelite was 
originally conceived of as a synthetic substitute for the shellac used in electronic insulation, but the strength and moldability of the substance combined with the low cost of producing it made it pretty ideal for manufacturing. Now it was used to manufacture everything from telephone handsets, costume jewelry, to bases and sockets for light bulbs, to even automotive, automotive engine parts and washing machine components. But the material fell out of favor because of adaptive issues, and it was fairly brittle in its pure form. But to make it more malleable and durable, it was strengthened with additives. Unfortunately, the additives dulled the hue colored, colorized Bakelite, and so when other plastics that followed were found to hold their color better, Bakelite was pretty much abandoned. So it's synthetic plastics as a whole now, massive impact. No, absolutely. I mean, I can look at, I mean, my entire setup here, like my mouse, my microphone, my computer, everything that I'm looking at right now is using a plastic in some way. So Mm -hmm. you can't deny that it's pretty significant. The chair I'm sitting on is made of plastic. So with that being said, pretty significant. But if we're talking about what was specifically invented during this time frame, it was Bakelite and it had some issues. Now, what followed? Sure. Very, very significant. But at the time and with what he did, I think it's about a nine. Yeah, I think that's fair. I didn't have this on my list. I, I, you know, and, and I would argue this probably ranks much, much higher if we're just doing important inventions. Sure. Um, or historically significant for culturally relevant, you know, still, you know, still a major impact here, but definitely going to be not as high ranking. Mm-hmm. as perhaps some other items that I think may, might end up on both of our lists. Sure. What's your number nine? My number nine is uh, the teddy bear. Hmm. Which was I had invented it on my honorable in mentions. 1902 uh, by, interestingly enough, seemingly simultaneously created by Morris Mitchum, Mitchum and Richard Steiff. Uh, both kind of came up with this idea at the same time. Did they both name it the teddy bear at the time? I believe they both named it the teddy bear. Hmm. I mean, it's Uh, named after Theodore Roosevelt, right? Right. So the story here, briefly. uh, So Teddy Roosevelt, uh, during a hunting trip uh, where most of the other attendees had successfully killed an animal, uh, the president had not as of yet, uh, a group of his attendees ended up trapping and clubbing a bear and tying it to a tree they then presented it to Roosevelt to kill, and he refused, saying that it was unsportsmanlike. Uh, so then this ended up inspiring a political cartoon by artist Clifford Berryman, and subsequently inspired both these two men, Mitchum and Steiff, to make a stuffed doll that they called the Teddy Bear. Amazing. So um, this is kind of a predecessor to it, it, this real like became very very popular very quickly, and kind of. I think is uh, of the items on my list kind of more in like the child's toy direction as mass commercialization of a specific type of toy. Um, and like the idea of stuffed plush kind of animals and uh, obviously is an industry that is truly massive today, but even, even at the time became very, very popular very quickly. Well, the president was a celebrity. Yeah. He's a very popular president. Also, you hated the name Teddy, which makes this extra funny. Yeah, I don't feel any certain way about him. I just know that he was the president. <laughs> That's true. And there was a bear. The Bull Moose Party. 
Hmm. That I did know. That is a good name. I like that name. Well, we did my number eight as well because I had microwaves. Yeah. What What was your number eight? Why don't we just go straight there? Yeah, sure. So my number eight is uh, this one's a little um, I so mine is the mine is the robot. Mm. Um. And the, the dance or the robot, <laughs> the, the, not the dance. Um, it's really hard to pin down a specific first robot. There were a ton of different efforts happening around this time period. And what could you call a robot? What, how do you define that? What, how I the, chose to define it, the Turing machine less. So like, if you go back to like, I want to say it's like 1905 or something, there's like a automated uh, radio signal system that this guy developed to control a boat. That's not really what I was going for. I was going for the idea of a robot as an autonomous being, right? Some kind of entity that is that is taking autonom- automated actions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the one that I chose to go with is uh, 1912. Leonardo Torres Quevedo made... The first autonomous machine capable of playing chess, uh, which he called El Ahadresista. That's a great name. It's very good. So, uh, arguably, this is also the first computer game. <laughs> it was capable of completely autonomously. So there are other other kind of um, similar devices that were made at the time, but were actually human powered. Um, in the kind of human operated, this was completely autonomously, algorithmically, and electronically based, playing a three-piece chess endgame uh, mm. involving the robot playing as a white king and rook, and then the human player, all they had was a black king. Um, via the algorithm, it was capable of checkmating the human player every single time. Mm. It might take a long time. Um frequently it would be within 50 turns sometimes it would take longer than that um but every time eventually it would checkmate the um the human player uh it was also capable of identifying illegal moves if the human player made one so it would flash a a light at you if you uh made an illegal move it's pretty impressive so you know by by today's standards a pretty pretty basic (laughs) i I can get behind this idea as how you defined the robot certainly I, I think that the autonomous entity makes sense not really what i think of traditionally but what were you thinking on cultural impact for this so for cultural impact the robot as an idea is a very popular idea in people's imagination right um that you know the the term robot itself comes from a play which i believe happened a little bit later than this i want to say like 1918 or something is a russian play rossum's universal robots um and uh this uh the just that idea of a machine person the idea of some kind of um some kind of mechanical man that whether it's capable of making, if it's sapient, if it's sentient, if it's making decisions for itself, or even if it's not, even if it's just totally um, controlled by some some algorithm or something, like rapidly became insanely popular in pop culture. Um, there's there's thousands and thousands of fictional works, stories, and, and ideas 
surrounding the idea of a robot as an autonomous being that is doing things. Uh, and so I, I, I think that just in the, the public consciousness, the idea of the robot, um, even without getting into what actual robotics went on to do, um, as you know, hugely, hugely important now in all kinds of different things. But even just that idea of the robot, I think, is uh, enough to make it uh, qualify on the list, even if it's in the in my lower five here. Sure. No, it's a good addition. I I guess I saw that on the list. I didn't really think about the impact in the same way, but I get why you did it. Yeah, so, I, I and 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 as you say that, this is definitely a thing where like this is a list where it's like. I think there's a lot of different acceptable answers to what could end up on these lists because there the there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of inventions. Oh yeah. Um, even just in this time period, and I think you could make interesting arguments about hundreds of them. You know. Um, well, how about so, I go to my number seven and make another interesting argument? Let's do it. In 1950, the credit card was invented. Okay. Invented in 1950, the Diners Club card is known as the first modern-day credit card. The idea came from Frank McNamara, a businessman who'd forgotten his wallet while out to dinner in New York. He and his business partner, Ralph Schneider, would soon invent the Diners Club card as a way to pay without carrying cash. And the Diners Club card was first used only in local restaurants before expanding to include additional retailers. The new charge card required customers to pay the balance in full at the end of every month. Which, for those of you who have a credit card, should be doing that anyway if you're capable yep. of doing so, so that you, you do you not accrue interest. By 1951, the Diners Club boasted 42,000 members and had expanded to major U.S. cities. And by 1953, it was accepted in Canada, Cuba, Mexico, and the U.K. It wasn't long before credit cards got popular. Banks began issuing their own cards. But instead of requiring payment in full at the end of the month, consumers could have revolving credit in which balances rolled over from month to month dangerous mm -hmm. but i think you you really can't deny the significance of credit cards either right it's, that's true they're everywhere i i have what four or five of them at least like for varying things i got a lowe's credit card i got one from a home improvement thing i got a couple through my bank like there's these are just parts of our lives you you want to join this credit card thing and get a special offer there's a deal for that like a lot of businesses offer credit cards reward points cash back yeah i hear credit card commercials all the time samuel L. jackson tries to get me to get a capital one whatever card and i don't know i just i don't need more credit cards but credit cards enable people to live their lives in a lot of cases it's a little bit sad unfortunately that it comes to that but credit cards make things easy allow you to get things sooner than later which is part of the I want it now culture, which is unfortunate, but it's reality. It's a dangerous invention. It is. It's, it's, a. it is dangerous, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find any adult in the U S especially that doesn't have at least one credit card. Well, yeah, like in the whole like concept of the credit score and that's just like an unfo extremely unfortunate, like mandatory part of being an adult now that you have to deal with. Yeah, which is never fully explained to you ever. 
goes up, it goes down. You check on your credit and it goes down for some reason, like it's being because responsible. It's a scam. It is. It's a bit of a racket industry and I don't really like it, but I recognize that I'm an adult and I need to play in this mode if I want to advance in certain things. Like, you know, buying a house, for example. Sure. You need credit. How do you build credit? You get a credit card. That is not the only way, but a primary way. A, a, a major way, certainly. That being said, I don't think it's significant enough globally that every country or person in the world has a credit card. I think it's way more prevalent in like US and maybe parts of Europe and Canada, but I don't think it's a global phenomenon. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I and I would agree. This is definitely a very significant one. It wasn't you know to me it wasn't significant enough to make my list, but um, certainly uh, a very important uh, culturally invention. Uh, but you know, maybe not comparing to some of these things that are going to be in our top five. Certainly, sure. So, what's your number seven? My number seven is uh, f- the process of flash freezing food. Hey, that's my number six. Hey, there we go. 1929 from Clarence Birdseye. I have 1924. Ooh, we'll have uh, to du- we'll have to double yeah. check. Yeah, well, we can double check that later. But, well, I um, saw. I think it was 1924. He realized what it was and then came up with the commercially viable version in 1929. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And that's, and that's an interesting, there's a lot of dates attached to these various inventions and stuff. Sure. Usually what I'm doing my dates around are, this is when this was like when a thing was made, when a thing was operational and the thing was made. That's, do you um, have the background of how he came up with this idea? Cause I um, have that. So yeah, if you want to dig into that, why don't, why don't you, I do it real quick. So, uh, Clarence Birdseye, which the name might sound familiar to a lot of you because Birdseye still exists as a food brand. and Still a frozen food brand. Buy their vegetables with some frequency. But in 1924, Birdseye was fishing in the frigid Labrador territory of Canada, and he realized that the fish that he caught would freeze almost immediately after being pulled from the water. Months later, when he thawed the fish, he was actually impressed by how excellent it still tasted. Now, it at the time it wasn't very innovative but it was the concept of the flash freeze like Josh is saying that he kind of thought up or realized after that experience where it became more of a novel concept and uh as a result he invented the flash the commercially viable flash freezing process and which, and, and I, other thing i would like to add here too part of his um innovation in this area came from ideas he got from observing indigenous peoples in um in that area and what oh, they were yeah. doing around food yeah the the reason that this is important is because food that is slow to freeze develops very large ice crystals within the cells yep. of the food which melt as the food thaws which leaks moisture and flavor from the food and it creates kind of a gross texture in a lot of cases yeah, it's very damaging to the the structural integrity. Absolutely. And so when it comes to the formation of the ice crystals, the faster we freeze, the smaller the ice crystals are, and they don't have a chance to get big enough to damage the food. And once he realized that he had stumbled on something pretty significant, it was kind of the rest was history. 
yeah this this you know leads to the commercialization of frozen foods and is a major contributor to supermarkets um and the kind of the formation of the supermarket as a certainly as an american cultural institution mm-hmm. mass producing food you freeze food lasts a whole lot longer makes transporting it a whole lot easier Yep, more efficient modes of transportation, improvements in technology, cold chain logistics. I mean, it's it's a massive industry now. And in yeah, the, the 40s, right, the first ever complete frozen meal was created and marketed, which mm-hmm. created a movement that would take the United States by storm over the next few decades. But I, And on top of that, right, preparation, it was very easy. Had It, it has its own inherent self-preservation. And in most cases, it was very affordable. So it became super important to American households. Yeah, yeah definitely. It was a staple. TV dinners. Very funny. I think that we both put uh, the flash freezing food and the microwave oven on our list. Yeah, right. <laughs> I those, are pretty, they, those are they, pretty connected. I was going to say, I thought they were paired together. Yeah. <laughs> One enables the other. So while it's not as popular today, I think, I mean... Let me rephrase that. The TV dinners are not as popular today. Right. That's but, kind of fallen out of favor. But in the early 2000s, they saw a resurgence with the health food kicks. Right. And so it was, you could get, you know, high protein meals for like two bucks in, in a frozen form of some kind. Um, but the one thing that is actually uh, significantly Im- gone up in the last few years even was frozen vegetables and sure. and it's just being able to keep them for longer people are trying to be more health conscious in a lot of ways frozen vegetables are an easy way to get that into your diet and uh, yeah we we buy frozen vegetables all the time likewise and, and you know frozen chicken nuggets which my family goes through like it's going out of style less of that around here but we also don't have children fair enough so yeah, that was my number six. Your number seven. Did you have anything else you wanted to add for the flash no, freezing that's process? It. That's okay. it for what I have for, for old Clarence here. It's a great name though. Clarence Birdseye. Yeah. What do you got for six? Uh, number six, I have the bra, which was invented in 1913 by Mary Phelps Jacob. It was an honorable mention for me. So uh, I have a little bit more on this one. Uh, obviously, uh, let's say this type of device has existed in some form going back thousands of years, right? Um, but the modern bra was created in 1913 by Mary Phelps Jacob, patented and mass produced um, in 1914. Uh, so the story goes that Mary was attending a ball. She's a uh, uh, born to a wealthy family and kind of a debutante kind of thing. Uh, attending a ball, realized that her corset would be peeking out from the dress that she was had brought to wear. So she quickly sewed two handkerchiefs and some ribbon together to make what she called a backless brassiere. Uh, this rapidly became popular among her friends and uh, as a uh, way easier to deal with alternative to a corset, which was kind of the popular uh, garment among social, this kind of social circle at the time. Uh, and she ended up securing a patent and realizing that, hey, this is definitely commercially viable as a product. Uh, um and uh, she tried to produce them on her own for a while, and then that didn't go as well as she had hoped, so she ended up selling off the idea. 
Um, she wrote that her invention was well adapted to women of different size and was so efficient that it may be worn by persons engaged in violent exercise like tennis. Um, violent is, exercise like that's, tennis. That was her phrasing, which I thought was funny. Um, al- also very actually, relevant. She never heard Serena or Venus with their tennis grunts. She would probably <laughs> think it was even more violent if that were probably. the case. Uh, I, I, also relevant here is that um, the bra rapidly becomes a incredibly more affordable alternative to like corsets and thing other types of garments like that that were kind of the popular thing at the time and were out of reach for uh poorer folks a lot of the time hmm. um obviously hugely culturally important here um became the standard undergarment for women or a standard undergarment for women around the world within in the in the decades after that and then another culturally relevant thing here that i wanted to call out was um the the whole concept of the the bra burning feminists um as a another cultural touchstone around around the bra is uh that's actually a myth um coming from the feminist protests uh, around the Miss America pageant in the late 60s um but uh they they didn't actually burn any bras there that's not a thing that happened but all the news stories said they did um and so that uh even today still you know, 60 years later, uh, still gets attached to, uh, feminist stuff, which I thought is interesting. I didn't actually know this was a myth until I did the research for this. So Hmm. yeah, I didn't know it was a myth either. What I was thinking was, was there a representation in a movie where they actually did burn bras? And that's entirely possible but the uh the the popularity of this phrase would like with came was like in newspaper headlines like the day after this happened mm, i gotcha yep i didn't know it was a myth either interesting well, that's my number six the bra mm-hmm, mm-hmm. shout out to my aunt who will not say the word bra uh <laughs> and will say arb instead seriously because it is uh too sexual Oh, well, we probably should have put some kind of a warning on this episode. Yeah, content warning. Talking about bras. Ooh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Sexually explicit content. It's okay. Something tells me she probably does not listen to our podcast. Yeah, I don't I don't think she does. I don't even know if she knows that I do this podcast. Well, she should be more supportive and aware of her nephew. But yeah, that's... Uh... That's our 10 to 6. We're going to we're going to take our first break here. We'll come back and talk about our 1 through 5. So stick around folks. Hey there. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you have show ideas or comments, you should reach out to us. You should email us at stupid sequence at gmail.com or you could try at twitter slash x at stupid sequence we would love to hear from you wouldn't we josh <sighs> we do like hearing from fans not just people that's, that's... that we directly interact with and we'll get there it's all yeah, good. let us know let us know what you like let us know what you don't like you got ideas for the show Throw them at us. We might do them. 
We might not. I don't promise anything. But we'll read it. We'll read your email. If you send it to us, we will read it. I can promise that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the one person who has emailed us. Thank you. <laughs> in that a non-commercial capacity. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're still open to sponsorship. AMC, I know you're listening. Love to sample more of your movies uh, and encourage others to do so at your theaters. Eat more of your popcorn. Or if you just want to send us some of those popped popcorn bags, I'm cool with that too. Sure. I like popcorn. I haven't sampled them yet. It's on my to-do list. I haven't found them yet. This is part of the problem. I bet they sell them on the internet. Yeah, I'm not overpaying for them just so I can try them. That's fair. But we should go to the next set of uh, numbers here. Yeah, Scott, why don't we dig into your number Cinco. Cinco de Listo. Don't say that. All right, number five. Speaking of movies, Talking Pictures, 1927. I had this on my honorable mentions. Oh, yeah, because, you know, movies... They don't have a significant cultural impact. We certainly well, don't, don't discuss them on our podcast, even. That would be ridiculous. I, I, I'm with you that movies have a significant cultural impact. This is specifically talkies, and while I'm with you that, you know, talkies definitely still very important, I would argue that move for me, this is the decision that I made. Mm. Movies pre exist 1900. Sure. Um, and specifically making it talkies, did the conversion of reg- of silent films to talkies just didn't quite hit my list. Okay, well, let me talk you through what I've got going on here. Sure. So since the invention of cameras and the creation of motion pictures, the entertainment industry has continued to innovate how art and technology are used to bring stories to the big screen. And as Hollywood began to ramp up production in the 1920s, advancements to cameras, film editing, and sound became defining points in the evolution of cinema. So one of the most influential developments that changed everything from how films were shot to how background actors were used was actually the introduction of talkies. So talkies get their name from the recorded dialogue that played in sync with the images on the screen. Um, movies from the silent film era, which was roughly 1894 to 1929, they were largely recorded and played without sound. And most of these films relied on uh, intertitle text to explain key plot points and then live pianists, organists, and orchestras would provide a score or other sound in the theater. But as technology advanced, recorded dialogue made its way into film and talking pictures were born. Warner Brothers, an emerging studio at the time, was one of the first Hollywood companies to take interest in sound technology and heavily invested in the Vitaphone sound-on-disc system. In 1926, they released Don Juan, the first full-length movie to feature synchronized score and sound effects using this method. Though the film itself did not have recorded dialogue, Musical shorts and a recorded speech from Will Hayes, president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, and founder of Central Casting, accompanied the feature. In his speech, Hayes said, My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Okay, that's fine. But in 1927, 
The Jazz Singer, another Warner Brothers film, became the first feature with recorded dialogue, though the lines were only heard in like two scenes. But a year later, Lights of New York became the first all-talking full-length feature, and due to its commercial success, it set Hollywood on a path that saw an end to the silent era and made way for the films as we know them today. That was just a couple years, uh, that was a year after The Jazz Singer in 1927. So that was 1928, literally a year later, all silent film era dead. That's a pretty significant impact. Definitely. But beyond revolutionizing how stories were told on screen, talkies changed the way that films were produced and distributed. Since most theaters in the 20s used live orchestras and not projected sound, they didn't have the equipment needed to play sound films. So due to the box office success of early talkies, theaters began the expensive process of wiring for sound. And by 1930, around 10,000 of about 15,000 cinemas in the U.S. had been retrofitted with the necessary technology. And as talkies became the industry standard, productions also had to change the way that they filmed. Much of the equipment used on set was actually quite loud and had to be fitted with sound dampening devices so the noise wouldn't be picked up during filming. And since early microphones were stationary, actors had to limit the way that they moved throughout a scene to ensure they were always close to the mic. So for a time, filmmakers used a multi-camera setup so they could compensate for the lack of mobility and still get a variety of shots. And for background actors, you know, extras, the introduction of sound recording on set changed the way that they did their jobs. Background, background close to the microphone had to be silent, and pantomiming became an important skill set in a background actor's arsenal. Before advancements to sound and film editing, crowd scenes had to be carefully orchestrated depending on how much, if any, background noise wanted to be included in the scene. Now most crowd noise is recorded separately and added in post during the sound mixing phase. Central casting, central casting casts these... Uh, wall of groups for all kinds of productions, even for animated shows like The Simpsons. So from the introduction of sound and film to the founding of central casting, innovation in the 20s paved way for films as we know them today. I mean, it's, it's significant. It's significant that it changed theaters across the U.S. It changed the, the retrofitting beyond the sound, but to no longer need a band or an orchestra to accommodate. It changed the way that actors positioned themselves. It changed equipment. It changed, you know, multiple things throughout the entire industry peripherally as a result of this. And therefore, we now have talking pictures as they are today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely very significant for sure. And I think there's a little bit of bias in here because I think movies as a culture are an important thing. Because they're oftentimes a reflection of things that are said or even unsaid within our culture. It's what's popular at the time. It's what's interesting. It's, you know, the day-to-day topics. A lot of that is possible because talkies were invented. So I think a lot of people go to the movies, maybe not as much today, but a lot of people still watch movies, still watch TV shows, still watch all types of recorded medias, even online I, I think it's it all starts here. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly not going to argue that this isn't a hugely significant thing culturally. Uh, for me, I just maybe maybe some of the, especially these elements in my top five, I think maybe punch a little bit harder. Well, I guess we'll find out. What's your number five? 
My number five is The Airplane. Maybe you've heard of it. Mm, uh, invented. Yeah, I, I can hear it all the way on my number two. Wow, there you go. Yeah, so uh, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright uh, making both of our lists. A lot of duplicates this week. Um, but yeah, this uh, so specifically here when we talk about the airplane... The, 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 the Wright Flyer is the name of the, the first aircraft. This is the first manned-powered flight. Because, uh, boy, there are a lot of different um, aviation pioneering events happening around this time period. But the most famous, uh, for good reason, is, is the Wright Brothers' first flight here. It's a little bit of background on their stuff. Um, so they worked as shop mechanics, mostly working on bicycles kind of mm-hmm. in the late 1800s. Um, and then they kind of, um, they were, they were interested in the idea of aircraft and we're seeing different innovations happening around things like gliders and, and other types of flight. You know, uh, there, there were things happening around, you know, manned but unpowered flights that were just gliding. Um, there were innovations happening around powered, unmanned flights. But they were the first people to kind of combine all of these ideas with their own engineering prowess and made an actual powered manned plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, after lots and lots of previous attempts, they made two successful flights on December 17th, 1903 in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Quick quick note on that. Four men and a boy witnessed this flight, and one of them took a picture. Yeah. Um, they, they ended up doing some traveling after this because a lot of the world was skeptical that this had even happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few so newspapers they, they did mention the event, but yeah, very little attention was paid to the airplane for like five years. Yeah, so they um, they ended up, you know, kind of world touring it up. Um, they like did demonstrations in France and stuff like that. Pretty awesome rapidly uh, so they that you know they were also making you know improved flying machines in the years after this as well uh they also very rapidly got caught up in a patent war with other aviators uh that started taking their ideas basically uh they did eventually win those lawsuits and and kind of were able to solidify themselves as the inventors of this stuff uh but yeah obviously culturally this leads to the development of commercial air travel uh and you cannot understate how important that is culturally, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's an incredibly pivotal step in the march towards globalization, dramatically shifting the nature of media and culture all over the world as a result. It's a pretty significant step in the civilization games. Is the That's true. The That's true. It's an important it's an important uh technology. If I may, one thing you haven't touched on yet, the war significance right oh yeah absolutely so when world war one began in 1914 the design capability and production of airplanes advanced rapidly i mean manufacturers built airplanes in england france germany in the u.s however only really had like 110 airplanes available when it entered into the war in 17 so to rectify the deficiency airplane manufacturers cooperated with automakers to produce 15,000 additional planes by the end of the war in 18. So two aircraft companies established in time to make planes for the war, and they became leading aircraft producers. One is Boeing, based out of Seattle, Washington, uh, Seattle, Washington, and the other is Lockheed in Santa Barbara, California, also known as Lockheed Martin now, both still in business to this day. So after the war, advances continued at a rapid pace, and by 1920, airlines were carrying passengers across the U.S., 
as well as Europe, and the U.S. government used airplanes to speed up delivery of the mail, and in 1924, beacons were established at airports and night flying became feasible. By then, passenger airplanes, or airlines excuse me, were operating in South America, Africa, Australia, at KLM, Lufthansa, Qantas were pretty early airlines that are actually, again, still around today. Yeah, the longevity of airline companies is crazy. So many of the earliest ones are still in operation. Right. Europeans led in building airplanes as well as in running airlines. Um, De Havilland and Vickers built planes in England in the 20s, and in France, several companies arose in the 1930s. But in Germany, they banned... Uh, in Germany, banned from manufacturing military aircraft by the peace treaty at the end of World War I... Messerschmitt, Heinkel, Fokker, and Junkers created an aviation industry, kind of separate for that. They also built military aircraft in secret after Adolf Hitler came to power in 33, which, you know, was against the, the treaty at the time. Uh, Japan also built military aircraft in the 30s, and their biggest company was Mitsubishi, which produced the Zero, a world-famous uh, World War II fighter plane. In the U.S., several more aircraft companies were established. Donald Douglas located a company in Santa Monica, California, and Consolidated Aircraft in Rhode Island took over the designs of the, the company, the Wright Brothers, that started in New York in 1909. And during this period, air transportation was becoming safer, and by 35, four U.S. airlines were operating, American Eastern, United, and TWA. Other airlines like Northwest, Delta, and Braniff established regional and restricted schedules. And Pan America Airlines was the only American international airline at the time, flying to Latin America, Asia, and the Pacific. And I think you're right. And I'll just, I'll skip a bunch of this here because I've got a, a ton of notes on this, right? Uh, the, the invention of the airplane led to new technologies, new ways of battle, modern warfare, and safer and more efficient travel. Space travel also would not have been possible without the Absolutely. idea of air travel. The Wright Absolutely. brothers could not possibly have imagined the enormous impact that their invention had on the lives of people today and how improved their little plane would actually become. It's, uh, it's amazing. So completely agree with you here. I had it as number two, and it was mostly because of the connection across worlds. You can get anywhere in the world in about a day's yeah. time. It's, it's that globalization thing that is, that's what really makes this culturally significant i think and it makes the world a smaller place in that sense right the globalization right. the crossing of cultures the the ability to just go and see somebody on the other side of the world is incredible so it's i think it's huge i, I think the airplane in general one of the most significant inventions you know of the entire century maybe of all time let alone just this period yeah, very, very big. I, and one, one last addition that I had here, um, Scott, you were talking a little bit about like the rapid innovation during World War One. Uh, highly, highly recommend if you haven't read about that stuff, go go dig into that history a little bit because it is absolutely insane. The stuff that was happening around then oh, yeah. in terms of, of, of how airplanes were being used in war and the just ludicrously unsafe things that were being done. <laughs> Um, it's just uh, mind blowing. So uh, go, go do yourself a favor and go look into that if you like history stuff at all, because that stuff is very, very interesting. Pretty cool. Airplanes. Also, 
Airplane the movie is very good. Oh. <laughs> is it which has more cultural significance, the movie Airplane or Airplanes themselves? Uh, I mean, the movie's very close, uh, uh, obviously, but I think the actual airplane itself is more important. Well, th so that was your number five. Um, right. Mine was talking pictures. I had airplane. Why don't we? Why don't we swap here real quick? Why don't you just go for your number four as well? Sure, I can do that. Uh, so my number four is the magnetic tape recorder, invented in 1928 by Fritz Flumer, with a P. P-F-L-E-U-M-E-R um, in Germany, actually. I, so, as soon as you said it was P-F, I knew it was in Germany. Yeah, it's a very, very German name. Uh, so this is specifically the first functional magnetic tape recorder for sound. Um, he So uh, Flumer uh, coated 16 millimeter wide paper strips with fine granules of iron powder. Um, and then was able to use that for magnetic recording. Uh, his name for the device was his sound paper machine. Sound paper machine. Yeah. There's not a ton of story out there about how this was made. And that's because the invention of this device was mostly kept secret in Germany due to escalating tension between countries prior to World War II. But post-war, the technology made its way to the United States and was developed for commercial use. Uh, an interesting early investor in this technology and uh, ultimately very important contributor was Bing Crosby, um, the oh, really? singer. Yep. Um, his company uh, invested heavily in this and actually made their own progress in the technology. They made the first demonstration of videotape in 1951. Um, so a little bit after this, you know, the videotape part, you know, not exactly what we're talking about here, but magnetic tape recording as a concept is 1928. And that's kind of what all this technology builds on. Mm. Um, this very quickly became a very important technology. Um, magnetic tape storage uh, really within, you know, within, uh, uh, let's see, 1951 is the first time that uh, magnetic tape storage started being used for recording computer data. Um, and that's still mm. used on a huge scale today. What year did you say that was? 51. Okay. The very first tape, magnetic tape, could hold 100 bytes of data per inch. Today, the highest capacity tape that exists is 317 gigabytes per square inch. So the technology is slightly better now. <laughs> mm, slightly, but just yeah. slightly. So, and then as magnetic tape becomes cheaper, becomes more commercially viable, especially as we get to cassette tapes in the late 70s, uh, this makes audio recording and things like taping radio and stuff like that much more accessible to the average person. Yeah, and we start, we start um, democratizing the ability to create audio recordings right um we start removing barriers of entry there and then as we get into the 80s and 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 like vhs tapes and things like that suddenly now we can do that with video and video cameras become accessible to the um you know home home uh videotape recorders start becoming accessible and affordable to the average person mm -hmm. um and then that that technology have ends up ultimately, you know, it moves off of magnetic tape certainly, but like the, that develops people's interest in that stuff. Um, 
And then, you know, we start seeing a lot of these technologies combined and things like the smartphone. And now everybody's a photographer. Everybody's filming video stuff, you know. And so a lot of that stuff comes from this invent, uh, you know, is born really out of this invention of magnetic tape leads to the wide scale usage of these technologies. You know, I in looking over various lists of inventions during this time frame, I saw a magnetic tape recorder, but... I kind of glossed over it. I don't know that I gave it enough consideration, but with what you've outlined here, it's had some pretty significant impact. I don't think I don't think it's something that people consciously are aware of though. I, sure. I would say I get where you're coming from there. I, I would say it's a if you took the time to really think about it, then yes, there's obviously some impact here. But I think some of these other items outweigh it significantly because there's an immediate connection and mental understanding of the impact that it has but we no, can get I, into that. I, yeah some of them are, are definitely more active thought right this one yes. maybe not as much but well maybe not as much nowadays but like in the in the 80s when everything or late like late 80s when it was vhs tapes and cassette tapes everywhere mm-hmm. way more active thought about it i would say sure i mean my first car had a a cassette player yeah and absolutely mine too i bought some blank tapes and waited for songs that i liked to come on so that i could hit record yep and it didn't always sound great and i didn't always get the beginning of the song but <laughs> you know what that's <laughs> fine that's the best you had yeah and it was anyway. free and it was free yes and sometimes you get the end of the song has the the dj talking over it yes and even later when i was listening to allegedly downloaded songs from like Napster. LimeWire. Yes. There were some that were very obviously recorded off of the radio where the end of it was a DJ talking. Yep. Definitely. I had some Or switching to a news segment. I still have those recordings. Uh Yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, it's a good, good addition. Number four, magnetic tape recorder. Interesting. Let's jump over to your number four then. I have a feeling there's going to be a duplicate here. That is the TV, the television. That is my number one. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense that it would be on your list. I don't know if it makes sense to be number one. How did you credit this? (sighs) This one's a little complicated. Yeah, it's extremely complicated. And I, I couldn't credit it specifically the way I did it. I put a range. It was really like anywhere from 1904 to 1950. Because in in a German patent for a color television system from 1904, color TV was first mentioned, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really until like 1925 or 27, depending on are you looking at the electronic TV or are you looking at the the uh, mechanical television? You know, there's there were a bunch of different variations of this. So for sure. I, I didn't pinpoint it down except to say that it, a lot happened during this time frame and the first electrical color TV system was created by RCA labs uh, between 46 and 50. So that's when I, I think it became n- not completely culturally out there because at that point, some people had already started getting a television, but it was mm-hmm. of course in black and white. But yeah, for, for me, what I pinned it down to was 1927's 
invention of the first functional all-electronic image pickup device from Philo T. Farnsworth. I do have I do have him mentioned here as well. Okay, so the system was designed by Philo T. Farnsworth, like you said, who'd been working on it since 1920. Uh, electronic yeah. televisions. Quick, type... inter- quick interjection here. Yeah. Uh, so his his commercial demonstration of this was 1927. Uh, he was 21, 1927. He started working on this when he was 14. Yeah, that I'd noticed that as well. It's a insane, pr- pretty significant invention for somebody so young. Yeah. Uh, electronic TV is a a type of television that uses electronic signals to produce the images on the video screen. That that type of television is a is a visual medium that transmits the image and sounds by means of like radio waves, microwaves, or infrared rays. Prior to that, mechanical, there were motion pieces to it, but it was a different technology. Yeah. So essentially what, you know, you had mechanical TV that was as a number of years earlier to this. Um, and, and the kind of prevailing method of that was like a spinning disc with holes in it that was generating a video signal by moving that over images. Right. Um, very, very different. It's like, Yes, this television's a very different thing, like in in terms of the technology. Right. So since its invention in the 20s, the television has shaped the world in a number of different ways. And you'd find at least one TV, I think, in every household, possibly in, well, not the world, but on average, certainly, because most people have multiple TVs. Um, But it's hard to imagine a home without a TV console, especially in the U.S. Um, In the following years after the TV became a home essential, the way we interacted with the device also evolved with technological advances. So home decor to how we speak, and TVs drive cultural shifts, especially on the Mm -hmm. home front. Mm -hmm. So before the TV became a mainstream concept, interior decor of houses had to be functional, And so the entertainment area had a radio, piano, or whatever activity the family enjoyed. But after families started watching television at home, architects considered building homes with a specific living area in mind, which means TVs subsequently resulted in the invention of the living room as an an entire space in not every home, but the majority of homes. Even homes that didn't have one or weren't in or built with one in mind now have one or have been yeah, adapted it utterly pivotal to this is the the tv is the centerpiece of the american home certainly for better or for worse uh yeah and, and it gave access to live tv shows like news and sports which i have some more things on here but it also enabled the viewing of the first moon landing in 1969 mm-hmm. that was that was significant especially at the time TV allowed people with similar interests to connect over their shared love for different programs. And before the internet, watching TV shows was a massive social event. Friends and family members would gather to watch and enjoy their preferred programs. But, you know, these days, reality TV shows, TV series, they still drive massive conversations, but most of it's happening on the internet now. Sure. Uh, beyond social interaction, TVs influenced how we consumed food and shopped for our homes. Now, it's not just the TV dinners, right, that people named it a frozen food, uh, a style of frozen food after a TV dinner because you could heat it up and then eat it in front of the TV. Very convenient. But it had now cooking shows to 
to other home buying networks. People were exposed to a, a new type of lifestyle, and many celebrities resulted as, uh, from that. Celebrity chefs, for example, right? This whole, whole idea that you can learn how to bake or you can change up your home. I mean, there, there's a lot of different things that TV enables, and it, it, but it starts with the fact that it even exists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, people had pretty limited access to information and news. They had to wait for either radio broadcasts or newspaper reports um, of happenings all over the world. And, and that took time. Um, but today the TV has grown to become more than that. It's a, a source of en- uh, a source of entertainment. It's got with, with a simple click of a button, you can access live global news from any number of different countries. And before seeing colorful global cultures on your TV, viewers had a pretty limited worldview. Um, however, through documentaries, you can, you can learn about all types of different cultures from your home. Popular trends across fashion, film, food industries also spread all over the world. As far as culture creep, TV is one of the biggest sources. And even with people and shows migrating to the internet, Smart TVs were created to connect to the internet, and that it still allowed for streaming and even internet browsing. So it's every time you try to get pulled away from a TV, you get pulled right back to it. Yeah, I, I think it's worth talking about. Like, be a big part of why this is my number one is that you know the television. I'm I'm really not talking about broadcast television as a technology. Other that is part of it, certainly. I'm talking about TV as the first type of screen that humans had in their homes, where you were getting information from outside the home transmitted into your home. Early on, that's broadcast TV, but um, as time goes on, the TV is a base technology for all kinds of other things, like broadcast tele, like 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 you know scripted television shows eventually reality shows like you said tv uh new tv news sports sports broadcasts uh video games um through home consoles that starts up in in the late 70s into the 80s uh you know watching movies in the home home viewing of movies and stuff like that just so much culture and i would say a lot of people where you know prior to the takeover of the television a lot of people's culture came from like reading or um you know events outside the home that they would experience stuff like this the tv is the number one avenue in most homes nowadays that culture is getting into your house um you know as we uh, uh you know, there's an argument in the last, you know, 15 years or so that that is now the smartphone. But for 60 years prior to that, 60, 70 years prior to that, it was the television. But one thing that I'm kind of curious about, and while I was doing this, I was having trouble finding the data. And so maybe you can help shed some light on this. Um, and the reason I didn't have this even higher on my list, because I agree with a lot of what you're saying, my thoughts are, I don't think this is a 100% global thing. I mean, I think there are 
large parts of the world that still don't have or use TVs. But I could be wrong on that. Not all of my stuff is predicated on that. It was tough to compare a few of these. I just think TV while up there, and you can help me find this data maybe, I, I don't know that it's... I don't know. I, that I would it's argue the number one. first first world nations certainly. Sure. I would argue the majority of the populace of the planet. Sure. O- over fifty percent certainly. No, oh, certain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, majority over fifty percent, obviously. Yeah. Um. But that 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 was my. And and I think a lot of the a lot of the inventions on here, on, on my list certainly that are wouldn't um anything that tv isn't relevant for pretty much just about anything else on my list is also not relevant for Hmm. okay so that's where i'm coming from anyway again like we said a lot of western civilization and, and you know increasingly in other parts of the world as well obviously most of asia at this point um i think has televisions <laughs> but and a lot yeah. of this other stuff. No, I, I gotcha. And I don't know. It's hard to argue against TVs by any means. I just. It's just because it's such a hub for everything. Yeah. I, I think. And, 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 and it's only, like I said, it's only being supplanted in the last 15 years or so. For some people, smartphones are where they get way more things than TV nowadays. That's definitely happening more and more. But for a much much longer time period that's television Mm -hmm. Uh, a couple other things i wanted to add in here just about this initial invention in the first place barnsworth's invention here um so uh you talked about how the first color tv was created by rca radio corporation of america they were very interested in his invention in 1927 and actually offered him a hundred thousand dollars for it that would have been $1.7 million adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. He turned him down. He did not think that was enough. $1.7 million for a television. <laughs> the idea of television as an electronic television seems pretty low based on how much that would eventually go on to do. You know? Right. Um, so they were unhappy that he turned them down and basically tr- uh, spent a bunch of time filing uh, patent suits against him, claiming they designed it first. Um, he ended up winning the suit partially due to evidence presented by his high school chemistry teacher who had made a sketch of a drawing on the blackboard that Farnsworth had made in high school detailing the idea to him. Nice. Which is crazy. Also, if the name Farnsworth sounds familiar, if you've watched Futurama before, yep. uh, the professor is named specifically after this guy. Pretty cool. TV. Seems like it's kind of important. Yeah. Wow. My number one, Scott's Culturally. number, what were we on for you? Four. Three? Four. What an invention. What What was your number three? Uh, my number three is we're going back uh, a couple of entries here to a similar thing. Um, we're going to a mode of transportation here. I'm talking about the Model T, invented in 1908. Hmm. Uh, the designer on this was child Harold Wills, um, and the main engineers, uh, were Joseph A. Gallum and Eugene Farkas. Mm-hmm. Often attributed to 
Ford. Henry Ford. Henry Ford. Yeah. I mean, he, was more of uh, the business guy. He he was the business guy. It, it's still his Model T, right? He came sure. up with the concept, the idea of the Model T. They yeah. are the ones that did it. I mean, it's like saying Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, so to speak. He didn't really. He, he was running the company that did it. Yeah. You know. Anyway. Um, why is this important? Um, this is certainly not the first automobile. Um, they have yep. been around since the 1880s, but were not widely available. Were extremely expensive and were very unreliable. Um, the Model T is the first mass-produced affordable car. Um, it was instantly, and I'm talking about instantly, massively successful. Within days of them first becoming available, they had over 15,000 orders submitted for them. Um, mm, yeah. So did Elon Musk for the Model 3, but no. <laughs> the first ones, first Model Ts cost $850. Uh, adjusted for inflation today, that was $28,000. So, you know, pretty reasonable by how much cars cost today. In a lot of, a lot of places. Yeah. I, I mean, that's like a low to mid tier new car. Sure, sure. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. For the only car that you could buy that is an, affor- an affordable range, that's pretty good, I think. Um, yep. And then by 1924, they had become more affordable. The cost down to $260, which is only $8,600 today. Yeah. Uh, which is extreme, you know, on the terms of. Uh, a car that's very affordable. I think it was largely driven by Henry Ford himself wanting to decrease the price so that the average person who worked on the cars or assembled them could actually afford them. That was yep. one of his driving factors. So, uh, you know, and this is, it becomes the first car that's produced internationally. Um, so, and then ultimately all this leads to, especially in America, the widespread use of the automobile becomes massively, massively culturally important. Over 120 years, it becomes the de facto style of transportation for much of the world. And then, especially in America, by the 50s, the car starts becoming a representation of personal freedom and starts permeating its way into media more and more. We have car different types of car culture starts forming. Um, people who are specifically car people who obsess over tuning the car and, and, and improving, um, and, you know, just having really nice cars. Um, mm-hmm. we have car movies that start happening. We have cars, uh, for example. Yep, absolutely. Disney's cars, the, the biggest cultural, um, cars the, too, even more culture. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps not. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with Cars 2? All right, no, let's not get it's into not that a good discussion movie. right now. Um, it's a fine but, movie. All right, we're not going to... Okay, never mind, never mind, never mind. Uh, so, so, but like, especially, you know, and this one's a little bit more, a little bit more American-centric for sure, but definitely worldwide cars are hugely important, hugely culturally significant, but especially in America, cars are the thing. Everyone has a car, you know, um... Hmm. If you if you live outside of us of a major metropolitan area, certainly right. Um, part of that, you know, is this a good thing? That's very debatable. <laughs> and but so much so that it influences infrastructure completely. Oh, right? absolutely. Towns, uh, it, cities, it, it everything is the, it's designed around cars. It is the defining thing about <clears throat> infrastructure. 
bar none in in america um again for better for worse <laughs> some might say yeah definitively uh, for worse um but in terms of we're, we're not here to argue is this good we're here to argue is this culturally significant and i don't think you can argue against hey this is the the car the model t and the, you know the the car the, the modern car does not exist without the model t the way that it came about yep and especially with like we were saying the the actions that henry ford takes to specifically try and manipulate them this product to being a a product that is so available that why wouldn't you buy one mm-hmm. if you if you had the means you were getting one and I, I think it's more than just the model t it's the assembly line that comes with it sure. right because sure he invented i mean that also not a new thing he just perfected it he took right. a thing and made it very consistent and faster and as a result he was churning out hundreds of thousands of cars a day yeah if we want to talk about like if we were talking about inventors culturally significant inventors like of this time period like ford is definitely up there you know his contributions to the model t the mm-hmm. uh the the assembly line the We'll come, uh, 40 hour the 40 hour work week we'll come back to that yep so you know okay good model t number three very very important my number three in 1928 alexander fleming antibiotics slash penicillin i have this as an honorable mention so Alexander Fleming was, it seems, a bit disorderly in his work and accidentally discovered penicillin. Another good accident. Right. Upon returning from a holiday in Suffolk in 1928, he noticed that a fungus, Penicillium notatum, had contaminated a culture plate of Staphylococcus bacteria. He had accidentally left it uncovered. Which, how do you accidentally leave Staph? uncovered that seems like completely inappropriate (laughs) Um, but happy accident the fungus had created bacteria free zones wherever it grew on the plate fleming isolated and grew the mold in pure culture and he found that the p notatum penicillium notatum proved extremely effective even at very low concentrations preventing staph growth even when diluted 800 times and, so, and it was less toxic than the disinfectants used at the time. So after early trials in treating human wounds, collaboration with British pharmaceutical companies ensured that the mass production of penicillin, the antibiotic chemical produced by penotatum, was possible. Following a fire in Boston in which nearly 500 people died, many survivors received skin grafts, which are liable to infection by staph. And staphylococcus, not staph as in the people working on them weren't infecting them. That's That would be weird. Yeah. Tr- treatment with penicillin was hugely successful, and the U.S. government began supporting the mass production of the drug. And by D-Day in 1944, penicillin was being widely used to treat troops for infections both in the field and in hospitals throughout Europe. By the end of World War II, penicillin was nicknamed the Wonder Drug and had saved many lives. Scientists in Oxford were instrumental in developing the mass production process, and Howard Florey and Ernst Chain shared the 1945 Nobel Prize in Medicine with Alexander Fleming for their role in creating the first mass-produced antibiotic. It's a pretty significant discovery, if you ask me. Now, the discovery of... I would definitely agree. The discovery of penicillin marked the beginning of the antibiotic revolution. 
Ernst Chain and Howard Florey purified the first penicillin, penicillin G, in 1942, but became widely available outside the Allied military in 1945. So this marked the beginning of the antibiotic era, and that witnessed the discovery of many new antibiotics, and the period between the 1950s and 70s was named the golden era of discovery of novel antibiotics. No new class of antibiotics has been discovered since then. After that, the approach to discovery of new drugs was the modification of existing antibiotics. The antibiotic era revolutionized the treatment of infectious diseases worldwide, although with much success in developed countries. In the U.S., for example, the leading cause of death changed from communicable diseases to non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease or cancer or stroke. The average life expectancy at birth rose to 78.8 years, and older population changed from 4 to 13% of the entire U.S. population. Uh, and infectious diseases now became the problem of elderly cancer patients, transplant patients, uh, surgical patients, patients on immunosuppressive drugs, and other at-risk groups in developed countries. Although the developing countries also recorded a lot of improvement in the morbidity and mortality rate, infectious diseases still disproportionately affect all age groups in these in parts of the world, and that's actually due to a combination of other factors like poverty or inadequate public health measures, poor sure. sanitation, poor vaccine coverage, things like that. So with antibiotics in general, it, it, the cultural significance to me is it saved lives. It extended life expectancy significantly, increased an entire age range of population from four to 13% at a time when the, the population was still growing. So this is like, this is massive. It, it literally saved lives. It kept people alive. And as a result, the culture and surrounding from that was we have a, a, a little bit of an aging culture, people being able to bring that wisdom and, and the stories from their lifetime for that much longer to that many more people. It's a, it's a bridge to allowing, allowing older people more time is really what it was ultimately. So pretty significant contributions obviously an important one i think it it would definitely yeah. make a top five for an importance yeah for that's that's kind of where i'm going with this is if it, and this if the, if we were just doing raw historical importance this is maybe unquestionably a top five yeah you yeah. know unquestionably top five but for me for cultural significance i don't i don't see it certainly an honorable mention but like a top for me, a top 10, it didn't, it didn't qualify. Mm, I think it enables a lot. I think everybody knows antibiotics. I think people survive and are affected by these with some frequency. How often do you hear, oh, take your antibiotic regimen for the full amount of time? I feel like this happens more often than people probably realize. Yeah, you're not wrong. And Certainly. the demographic that listens to this podcast, I'm sure they know all about antibiotics. A lot of a lot of uh, seventy plus individuals listening. I'm sure. That's definitely that's definitely our target audience. I know. That's why we <laughs> talked about talkies in the 1900s to 1950s. They're like, oh, the talkies. Yeah, I love the talkies. Yeah, you know, every, back everyone. In my day, everyone uh, above seventy has the old timey radio voice. Well, yeah, but only when they're talking about their past 
or you know back in my day they have to say it that way if it's they... weird my my stepdad just turned 70 this year and oh, immediately man. started talking that way oh i knew it like on that is very strange <sighs> that's so bizarre it's uh maybe even more culturally significant than we realized it's probably all the antibiotics that changes your voice perhaps but that was my number three i think it's important i think culturally significant because of what it enables because of how many people are affected by this the back then and as a result of it now so yeah and uh, all the other drugs and treatments and you know healthcare procedures that that result as from this invention and i i think it's drastically important i think it's it's modern healthcare at its core is enabled because of antibiotics incredibly important i'd also like to add that i'm allergic to penicillin i was going to mention that i was going to (laughs) mention i didn't know that you were specifically but i do know other folks who are and i was like i wonder when they discovered that yeah penicillin amoxicillin of the cillin family Uh, my my genes are not weak so i am not allergic this is the only thing i'm allergic to on cats but that's a different different story I, I I'm like weirdly my skin is weirdly allergic to allergic to certain types of metal, but I got that from my mom. Hmm. I well, can't wear jewelry. My skin is not weak, so why don't we go to your number two? All right, my skin definitely weak. Uh, my number two, the final item on my list, because my number one was television. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two is the atomic bomb. Uh, uh, invented in 1945. Hmm. Yep. The are you know i've got inventors here listed as j robert oppenheimer and leslie groves um obviously way more people contributed to that project yep um go see the yeah, movie. this is this is my number two i've have, I have not watched the movie yet i will watch it as soon as i can watch it in my house so uh 1945 we got the manhattan project going the trinity test is the first detonation of a nuclear device in this time period since that's kind of where i'm you know the, the 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 how I'm qualifying most of my dates and stuff like that are when was the first one actually made or used. Uh, so ultimately, this project culminates in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II, um, and then plenty of other tests have happened in other nations in the years since. But those are the two actual mm-hmm. um, wartime uses of this. Um. The nuclear weapons and the atomic bomb as um, an idea instantly captures the minds of people around the world, right? Um, To an obsessive degree, arguably, um, some might argue. Uh, Belief eventually rose up that any further use of nuclear weapons in war would result in the destruction of all human civilization. Um this concept, if you've heard of the term mutually assured destruction, um, this is a concept talked about a lot in the World War or in the Cold War that Russia had nukes, the Soviet Union had nukes, the U.S. had nukes. Um, if one side were to launch, the other side would also launch, and uh, civilization is wiped out basically. Um, so we get the Cold War happening. Basically, as an entire result of nuclear devices exist, nuclear weapons exist, the Cold War now is happening for decades. And this spawns entire genres of media. Uh, this, the nuclear weapons don't 
directly create apocalyptic fiction, but nuclear disaster becomes the de facto apocalyptic setting from the 50s onwards. You have thousands of books, movies, and TV shows about this concept, hmm. about the idea of, you know, even, even just a nuclear disaster has happened, and here's the civilization, here's what life looks like in the aftermath of that. Cold War-based fiction also becomes massively popular. We have Russians start becoming the standard bad guys in a lot of media, and the threat of nuclear war or nuclear attacks becomes the driving force of thousands more media properties, fully separate from all the apocalyptic stuff, right? Um, any, even, even beyond Cold War, that is the go-to for decades and decades and decades of hey, if the good guy isn't able to, or the good guys aren't able to complete their mission, it's going to result in something's getting nuked, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, you get into, like, good, you know, the the good guy use of nuclear devices, and as you get into, like, oh, what's the, the moral questions around this, or what is the, um, or, like, a little more frivolously on the video game side, like nuclear devices uh, become like, oh, this is the pinnacle of the the tech tree. This is the pinnacle best weapon you can have is it's a, you're shooting a nuke at a guy like fall, the fallout series. You're shooting a mini or nuclear bomb at enemies. And that's the like the, the most powerful attack you have at your disposal. Right. This is like nuclear weapons just captures the imagination of humankind in a way that very few other ideas have. Like we talked earlier in my list about like the robot being a, like a very popular idea in, in fiction. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think nuclear weapons is a thousand times that um, certainly for a time period, arguably less so in the last 20 years or so. Um, but certainly for, a good 50, 60 years, like it is arguably one of the most or maybe the most pervasive ideas in human fiction. For those of you keeping count, that would be number seven that Josh has said arguably in the last five minutes. That's fair. Continue. That's fair. That's my argument, basically. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did consider this as part of my list. It made the initial, let's say, top 15 or so. Mm -hmm. I, I ended up chopping it, and the primary reason was because of its lack of significance now. Barring the Oppenheimer movie that was recently released, where it kind of brought it back into the fold culturally. I, I would say, I, I agree with you. For a long time, it was huge. This was extremely important, but we haven't really done anything in the atomic bomb space in many many years it's it's pretty much just threats at this point it's like a yeah i don't, I don't think idea. that makes it less less culturally significant though the idea of it is the thing that's yeah. my entire argument is that this idea is the thing we how, we had a whole war based on this idea, right? Whether that was false pretenses or not, we had a war within the last 20 years entirely around this idea as people have nukes that should not have nukes, so we are going to declare war on them, or mm -hmm. they're going to make nukes. Allegedly, yeah. That's, Allegedly. Uh, I also right. like the fact that George Bush could never pronounce this word correctly, and so he nuclear. said nuclear, nuclear weapons. 
But even 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 within the last what five years or so, we had the like North Korea start doing more nuclear tests and things like that, and we had a lot more stirring up of like, well, what the hell is going on with them? And there's like the alerts in Hawaii that happened on people's phones and everything like that. Like, oh my god! I yeah. think saying I think saying this stuff is not relevant anymore is like wildly inaccurate. No, it's it's not it's not as important as it was in 1960. Certainly, you know, but like, but is it a t- Still bomb, huge. or is it just bombs in general because it's atomic it's the atomic bomb as a nuclear device yeah i get right? that but i'm saying is the the persistent threat or cultural impact that you're referring to atomic specifically or is it bombing in general it's nuclear mm. it's definitely nuclear 100 percent i don't know that, if that's like regular I don't know regular like recent. the when is it like oh they're gonna drop big bombs that aren't in fiction that aren't nuclear like it's always nuclear right that's Mm. that's always the big scary thing the idea of it being a nuclear device is a thousand times scarier in the public consciousness than literally any other kind of bomb because people don't understand other kinds of bombs beyond just like well that's an explosion oh this is a nuclear explosion that means that it's going to do these specific things whether that's accurate or not right mm. um we've had we've had there's been more recent studies saying that like the idea of nuclear winter was always flawed and is like not actually a thing that's going to happen but that's not my that doesn't matter what matters is the idea that has latched into the public consciousness right you mean For the idea of ha- cultural significance anyway you mean we're not going to have a nuclear winter that's going to offset the global warming cuz that's what i was told That'll that is be- unlike that is unlikely <laughs> oh man the internet really steered me wrong with this one Okay, well, I'll leave it to it for now. I think we'll get into it more during the next phase of the discussion. Sure, sure. Yeah, number two, the atomic bomb, 1945. Hmm. What is your number one? Before I tell you my number one, let me let me just ask you a question because we're we're recording on a Friday, which is a little mm-hmm. bit unusual. Do you right. do you have plans over the next couple of days? You don't have to get into specifics, but do you get things going on next couple of days? I'm going to. I, uh, I'm going to dinner to celebrate a friend getting a new job tonight. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, this weekend you got plans. You're going to do any kind of, I don't know, video games, movies, anything like that. Yeah, probably. You gonna, you gonna work at all this weekend? I see where you're going. Cause, uh, my number one in 1926 is thanks to Henry Ford. The Long Weekend. Arguably the most culturally significant invention during this time period. Henry Ford is obviously most well known for the Model T and Ford Motor Company, or maybe even Ford Field if you're a Lions fan. Again, shout out to the Lions, three and one. But the greatest thing that he ever invented, it was his No Work Saturdays. Now up to that point, Sundays were often given to people as a, a day off. Not entirely, but it was more common. It's but the Sabbath. Exactly. You don't work on the Sabbath. In in Christian circles anyway. Right. Certainly in most American culture at that time. But it was on May 1st, 1926, when the Ford Motor Company went against societal norms and gave everyone a five-day week. And the weekend was invented and workers no longer had to come in on Saturdays. And that's not all. 
Earlier, Ford upped the stakes for minimum wages, too. At a time when other companies were paying workers a minimum wage of $2.34, which, by inflation standards, is already an incredible number, uh, Ford paid his workers $5, more than double the standard minimum. Uh, But did he actually get something out of this? He did. Ford got what he wanted, increased productivity among workers. In addition to this, he ensured that workers were loyal to his company. His workers felt a certain pride in working for a man who cared for them. The everyman, said Edsel Ford, needs more than one day a week for rest and recreation. And Ford's decision to turn a 40-hour work week wasn't just a Ford company policy. New weekend policies were soon created by several countries, or several companies, not just around the country, but around the world. And it wasn't just a company policy. He set a trend that we largely still follow to this day. I mean, you just admitted you are going to participate in what is known as the weekend. Now, not everyone has this luxury. Some jobs require weekend work time. You know, your gas station worker, grocery store, like other people got things going on. But largely in the blue collar and even white collar businesses, Saturday and Sunday are times off. So the next logical step, I think, is a four-day work week. You didn't go far enough. UAW, the United Auto Workers, is currently striking, and their demands are pretty typical of the norm. More pay and benefits. It's, yeah, I mean, they're seeing uptick in profits. Why wouldn't they get some of that, right? But one other demand that stands out this time, the union is asking for a four-day work week. And the idea is workers would put in a 32-hour week and then get paid for 40 hours, plus anything clocked over the 32-hour limit would count as overtime. Now, a shorter work week could help workers transition from building gas-powered vehicles to electric. And uh, Sharon Block, a professor at Harvard Law, uh, did some investigation into this and determined that it takes less time to assemble electric vehicles, which is definitely true. And workers who make the transition under a four-day rubric wouldn't necessarily see their pay take a hit if they were to do this. Now, it, it is noted that this is very unlikely to succeed, but it is the first time it has entered negotiations, right? It's on the radar now. And unions well, are... What? Well, because that's a, the other parts of the world are, are starting to dabble in this. Like Spain has a government-funded... Um, I'm getting to that. Yeah. ...trial. So, yeah, I mean, it's on the radar. The point is they're anchoring. It's a very common negotiation tactic, right? You ask for the world and you hope that you meet somewhere in the middle. Right. They're probably not going to get it, but this is the first time they're going to ask for it. It won't be the last time. They'll ask for it every time during renegotiation, whenever those happen, right? And unions have always helped push the standards for labor. And this step would just move us forward again. Now. No country has fully adopted a four-day work week, but there are some testing the waters, like you said. Uh, Austria, Belgium, Denmark, France, Iceland, Spain, and, and many other countries are already working less than 40 hours on average, in addition to sampling some of these uh, programs, as you call it, um, which are happening over multiple months, multiple companies. They're trying to figure out if they can make it work. but. I would like to note that the Netherlands has the shortest average working week in the world, and it is only 29 hours. 
And I got to say, those are some very happy people in the Netherlands. That's, that's my, that's my, uh, those are my ancestors. You know what? They're mine too. Just had a discussion I'm, with my aunt about this. I'm very Dutch. Turns out so am I. Two we thirds. Have, we should have that conversation maybe another time. Top 10 European ethnicities. Uh, nope. Nope. We're not, nope, we're not doing that. Nope. <laughs> That's a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> Don't do that. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Ee, ooh. But with that being said, I, I know almost everyone in the entire world is affected by this. The vast majority are affected by the weekend. It is absolutely a cultural norm. And we all have Henry Ford today. Thank for that. It was almost easy for me to put this as number one. Even when we first came up with the concept, I'm like, well, didn't he invent that during the time frame? And I looked it up real quick. I'm like, yep, absolutely. That is probably going to be my number one. Which is why the Model why T the and the Model assembly TF. line could not make my list. Okay. Otherwise, yeah, you did, it, you did it mention that you had you had two from one inventor on previously, and then you cut it. That's right. That makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. So, Henry Ford, thank you for your significant contributions to, I guess, the world and cultural as we culture as we see it today. You know, it almost makes up for your significant racism. Well, okay, that's that's not. That's not an invention that he had, though. That was already that already existed. I saw, I saw a post uh, recently that said uh, there's two kinds of people in the world: those who think that Elon Musk is a modern day Henry Ford, and those that think that Elon Musk is a modern day Henry Ford. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I would argue, though, that Henry Ford, on average, was a better person. Certainly a more successful one in terms of actual contributions to humanity. Yeah, well, yeah. All right, let's not have that conversation right now. I think that's, we could go down a, a bit of a rabbit hole there and sure. we, don't, we don't need to do that. We've already crapped on Twitter slash X and uh, that's an Elon Musk direct thing. So, but yep, long weekend, Henry Ford, number one. Yeah, I, uh, I never you... really even considered this as an option because I was more technology focused. Yep, I figured that was the case. And when I mentioned at the beginning of this that I've got one on my list that you probably didn't even consider, this is exactly what it was. Although you yeah, did yeah. mention it briefly. In your... yeah. We didn't, we didn't, I was just thinking more about technology. We never said we could, it had to be technology. So like, I, I totally get where you're coming from here. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Is a very culturally significant thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's our uh, that's our top tens. We've yeah. we've we've constructed our individual lists here, and we can uh, take in our second break, and then we'll come back with honorable mentions and final arguments over what's this unified list going to look like. Unified list. So stick around, gonna, folks. Going to be easy. Welcome back, everyone. If you made it this far, then you're probably enjoying yourself at least a little. In that case, an honest rating, a review, or simply referring a friend would go a very long way to help us get the word out about this podcast. 
But on the other hand, thank you for listening. We're going to move on to the next phase. But before we do that, as always, here are our honorable mentions. And quick before we jump into that, just a reminder for folks, we are on Acast now. If you like listening to stuff on Acast, we have migrated our hosting over there. So we got an Acast page. Go check it out if you are so inclined. Hooray. Do you want to go through your honorable mentions first? Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, I neglected to put dates down on any of these. So I got okay. one I want to talk about a little bit here very briefly. Um, and then the others are just going to list off. So one of the ones I wanted to include on here was the mobile phone, um, because that was actually patented in 1917. Um, and if you want to talk about the cultural legacy of the mobile phone and in terms of relevance today, obviously cannot be overstated. They call it the global cultural significance of that. However, uh, based on my own internal logic on how I constructed my list, a real commercially available mobile phone was not produced until 1973, which is outside our time frame. Hmm. But shout outs to Eric Tigerstead, who first patented the mobile. The, a, it, and in fact, it was even a flip phone. It was a folding mobile phone um, that he patented in 1917. And then also shout out to Martin Cooper, are recognized as the pioneer of the actual first mobile phone in 1973 okay um others we mentioned uh talking motion pictures of course um but, also um, known as talkies the escalator the vacuum diode the safety razor air conditioning windshield wipers insulin you had penicillin on your list the traffic signal scotch tape the tractor zippers uh the jukebox and the transistor all on my hmm. honorable mentions here um and then one that uh i saw listed that i was 100 percent going to include um somewhere in my six through ten but then realized that this i think including it as a invention in this time frame was a bit of a stretch uh was cornflakes because those <laughs> the actual first invention of cornflakes is more like like uh 1897 i think mm. um and they were actually sold in the late 1800s there it's just that they got changed a bit in like 1902 or something like that so gotcha. but uh, i think i think cornflakes and by extension breakfast cereal probably would belong on the top 10 yep didn't quite make place, the cut. but but didn't quite sneak in so sure. that's my list it's a good list uh, i do have some of the same ones um 1900 i have the zeppelin only because it's really awesome not because it's actually culturally yeah, not actually significant good but it did spawn, we got led we got led zeppelin i was gonna say it. it spawned a band name uh <laughs> 1901 the vacuum cleaner 1902 the air conditioner 1902 again the lie detector and 1902 a third time the teddy bear which you already covered 1904 tea bags 1905 uh, einstein published his theory of relativity i thought that was pretty significant 1908 the model t of course 1910 the headset and it actually was a physical headset that uh could be used to listen to radio waves 1913 the crossword puzzle pretty interesting a couple more from 1913 we have ecstasy we have the bra and we have fritz haber who developed a method for producing ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen which resulted in artificial fertilizer we probably don't even realize how significant that actually is because it enabled 
commercial yeah. agriculture b- way beyond. And it, it almost I don't think made I, my I might have included that if I had seen it. It, it, it almost made my list. The problem was I couldn't find all of the direct impacts that resulted from him doing that. And as a result, I was like, well, uh, it's close. Make it an honorable mention. Uh, 1916, Stainless Steel. Uh, 17, mobile phone, of course. 1918, The Fortune Cookie. 1920, Band-Aid. 1922, Insulin. 1935, The Electric Guitar. Also 1935, the very first canned beer. I did see that one. 1938, the ballpoint pen. Uh, I have 1942 as atomic power and, of course, 1945 as the bomb. But in between that, two important ones. We have in 43, the slinky. Also 43, silly putty. 46, in addition to your bra, we have the bikini. 47, we have Artificial Intelligence, Turing Machine. 48, Frisbee. 48 also, Velcro. And 49, Cake Mix. Interestingly enough, Hmm. the initial Cake Mix design was Add Water only. But, but, most of the women at the time who who baked for their, their families didn't feel like they were actually cooking or baking. And so they made it more difficult. So they felt like they were contributing more and actually baking something. And it became way more popular once they had to add an, you know, third cup of egg or a third cup of milk or oil and egg. Bizarre. Yeah. Something about them having to add additional ingredients and mix it all together mentally stimulated them in a way that made it feel like they were contributing more. Which like I, weird, I think is weird kind placebo of ridiculous. effect almost. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, I am baking. It's like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I'd rather go for the easier option, which is still available today. Just add water. But that was the last of my honorable mentions list. All right. Well, why don't we start digging into this final list here? I'm going to copy these. Uh, copy these entries over here. Well, and we, uh we do have a little bit of duplicates right we have the right. Air, airplane at five and two and mm-hmm. television at four and one and uh so if we were to include the number six being the bra and f- the flash freezing food process i think maybe which you also okay. had at seven at least as a starting point yeah i'm do du- i'm, I'm deduplicating a little bit here Oops, that's, nope, I've pasted that over. That's not what I want. Okay. So so that, if we include our top sixes, that's exactly ten. Yep. Then, so perfect. Yeah, so with um, that being said, I'm going to just throw this out there. I think bra should be ten, and flash freezing should be nine. You had it on your list as well, and uh, I, I think we can't understate the significance of it. I think that makes it an easy starting point. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair. We'll slot those in the bra and flash freezing food. Thank you to Mary Phelps, Jacob and Clarence Burzai mm-hmm. respectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the other items on this list? Anything you feel strongly about for or against? I think antibiotics should be eight or penicillin anyway. 
because, um, because again, I, I just, I'm not sold on the aspect of it being culturally significant compared to everything else on this list. Hmm. I see. I'll give it to you over flash freezing food and, and bra since those were lower down elements on our list. Right. Um, but I, I, again, if this was important, historically important, easy shoe in 100%, probably top three at least, but for culturally significant, I, I don't think it hits nearly as hard on that list. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. And I think as I was discussing it, I was kind of, coming to that realization. So I'm okay with that. We can make that number eight. All right. Moved over. Um, that's the one I felt the most strongly about. I think the remaining seven here, which are television, atomic bomb, model T magnetic tape recorder, airplane, long weekend and talking pictures. Um, I think are all very, very strong contenders mm-hmm. for this list. Um, I would you know, say even, including, those... including the two that I did not, put on the list sure magnetic tape recorder i'm feeling the least strong about at this point and would be inclined to slot it in at seven and that simply boils down to it's it's something that people don't realize and it's it might have cultural impact but if you mentioned it not many people would make that connection and so i think the lack of recognition puts it at a disadvantage. I I think it goes over talking pictures. And I, I thought you might say that. And and I'm actually inclined to agree with you because I think talking pictures are enabled as a result of magnetic tape recorder. So I, I think it's I'm okay with that. Yeah, it it it, it we get um it's specifically like talking pictures, you know, if we're talking about movies in general, obviously that would be higher on the list. Um, but this is just the step of sound with the movie as opposed to just the movie itself. And I think that step is smaller than the step of magnetic tape recording and everything that magnetic tape recording reveal entails. Well, I don't know if so. I agree with that. I, I think it's close. I think sound and having the synchronized oh, it's huge. dialogue it's is huge. massive I, I i'm not discounting that we're, we're the seven things we're talking about here are according to us the seven most culturally important things to happen over the course of 50 years so we're talking all of these are incredibly incredibly important incredibly impactful things um it's just to me i think magnetic tape recording is a bigger step than going from silent film to to films with the sound yeah no i i think i think uh making magnetic tape recorder six and talking pictures seven is is probably fine all right i've moved them over so we have a top five now and this is where it is harder <laughs> definitely definitely harder um i had airplane so, at two you had it at yeah. five mm-hmm. i had tv at four you had it at one now when i put the list together i was thinking about more in the american aspect specifically for tv and so i i guess i wasn't really considering how much it is just literally beaming culture from somewhere else into your home giving it It is the center portal yeah it has been the 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 centerpiece of culture in the home for you know let's say 
the indisputable centerpiece for culture in the home from uh, 1955 to 2015, let's say. However, I don't think it's number one. And I still think The Long Weekend supplants it. And it's mainly because when are you going to watch TV? How does The Long Weekend sound? Maybe you can watch a bunch of TV over the next two days. Because that's what a lot of people do. And, yeah. uh, and, and, I, and I am actually inclined to agree, I think. I'm, I'm going to go along with you on this one. I, I think um, just because it is, uh, you could say that the long the longer weekend as the established thing impacts uh a higher a much higher percentage of the world's population hmm. than television does um now if we want to start talking about if we can start getting into pedantic arguments about like okay how much does television impact the people it does impact versus how much does the long weekend impact the people that does impact that's a different it's discussion it's, it's much that's, close. that's that's close certainly um, but I think I think just on the argument of the percentage of the world that the long weekend impacts. Again, when I was putting my list together, I was really thinking mostly about technology, mm-hmm. um, which is why like NFL, the NFL, or the long weekend was were never even considered for me. But sure. um, within the bounds that we set up, I think it's totally fair, and I, I think it is. You know, there is a there is certainly an argument for to be made for it to be number one, so I'm happy to go along with it. Okay. Well then I think TV is definitely number two then. Yeah, TV's and, gotta be number two. And uh if I was reordering my list slightly based on this conversation, which I guess is kind of what we're doing right now, it would definitely be higher. So I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Now of the three remaining for three, four, and five, we have mm-hmm. the atomic bomb, we have the model T and the airplane. Now, model T was on my honorable mentions, specifically mm-hmm. because I Try not to have a duplicate. Right. Uh, prior to that, it was number 10 for me. So it wasn't super high up there because I was trying to unwrap a personal bias in the sense that I work in automotive. I That's see fair. the automotive industry and the massive impact that Henry Ford has had literally every single day, you know, except the weekends. But aside, I mean, that aside, being in Detroit, area we mm-hmm. know about henry ford's history we have the henry ford museum here we have the ford motor company nearby we have you know a significant automotive presence and i feel like i have an inherent bias toward it and so i purposefully put it down on my list as a result of that now if i'm so looking at to count to counter that yeah my from my perspective I you do uh, not work in automotive. I do not work in automotive. I don't like car culture at all. I don't like most movies about cars at all. Um, I don't like video games about most video games about cars at all. Herbie I'm fully not, loaded, not a fan. I'm okay, not you know perhaps not for me. Um, I I dislike what our reliances on cars has done to our culture and has done to city planning things like that sure i will say i do like driving um (laughs) i I do like the act of driving but pretty much everything else about cars i dislike um the emissions and that being said i think it is i think it ranks above airplane as a result um and just in terms of cultural um 
cultural significance, especially if we dial in a little bit more on America, just in terms of like car culture in America is such a specific thing. Um, mm. uh, that's how I still think of it. The atomic bomb is above both of these. I, and I'm going to disagree on that because I think the airplane is above the atomic bomb. And based on this conversation, I think the model T is actually above the atomic bomb as well. Really? So um, you would go what airplane model T atomic bomb? I'd be willing to concede model T then airplane then atomic bomb. And see, so for me, I would go atomic bomb model T airplane. So like we're, we are yeah, reversed here. That's, that's kind of, it's kind of tough. Let me, let me ask you this, uh, this atomic bomb threat that you're keep referring to and how it's relevant in culture, even today or in the last 10, 20 years, whatever, is it really relevant outside of the U S or is that a talking point of political heads to strike fear and to get votes? Because that's, I would argue it is like. very relevant outside. Let's say, ask, ask someone in South Korea, how they feel about North Korea having nuclear devices. I'm thinking more like in Europe, does Europe or Africa on a day-to-day basis give a crap about, anything to do with atomic bombs yes even on week to week arguably if you I there don't are think there, so. there's a lot of effort if you want to talk about like the un there's a lot of effort talked about like oh sanctions for iran around their nuclear program and things like that the de- right the decommissioning of the nuclear missiles that you're talking about and making sure that it's done on time and checking those things yeah no i get what you're saying there's a lot of global concerns about who has n- nuclear devices When's the last um, time that one actually went off? North Korea did tests within the it, last it, five years. In the water. And it barely okay. went anywhere and it wasn't even okay. full okay. strength. It was like nothing. There's like a minor thing five years ago. When's the last Here, time it, you but, heard about here's cars or airplanes? Scott, uh, today, Scott we're not arguing. flew over your house. <clears throat> Again, we're not arguing historical importance. We're arguing cultural significance here and i would argue that even today the idea the concept of nuclear weapons as a human narrative device as a human uh as a as an idea in collective human consciousness is still to this day massive even if it wasn't what it was 50 years ago even so, so, this is one of the, I think, across all of human history, this is one of the biggest, the, one of the biggest ideas that has, that humankind has latched on to the, uh, to the concept of. Okay, I, I won't, I won't disagree with that, but let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. How are you getting those bombs anywhere in the world? Oh, Ro- you're rockets. taking them on an airplane. Rockets. Oh, rockets that are designs that are specifically as a result of airplanes. That's interesting. How did they deliver the ones to Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, that was definitely How did they deliver any bombs to Pearl Harbor, <clears throat> right? Airplanes. Airplanes enable all of the atomic stuff that has happened ever. Well, the delivery, certainly. Maybe not the Cold Wars the or actual, just the discussions. Actual, the actual technology. Is. Yes. So, how are we doing this again? Oh, airplanes. Okay, yeah, right. Atomic bomb irrelevant without the airplane. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, uh, 
it's an interesting interdependent web here, right? I just don't see the relevance as as often or as significant on a day-to-day basis. And when I think about airplanes or travel, people think about travel way more frequently. I mean, we've had this problem while recording the podcast where an airplane flies over and I can hear it on the recording device. We're not ever worried about a bomb going off during recording. At least I'm not. I don't know. Maybe maybe you live in fear of that. Every day. My my greatest phobia. No. <laughs> my, yeah, my, my greatest phobia right behind Henry Ford coming back to life and, you know, smack. And teaming up with, with Elon Musk. And te- oh, God, don't say that. <laughs> I have a new fear. New fear unlocked. Oh, no. One fear. Uh, um, I just, oh, the, no. the atomic bomb had past tense had cultural significance during that time frame most certainly for many many years after that most certainly but the airplane was invented 40 years earlier and is still way more prevalent today in a lot of different ways and it has enabled more than just people flying around it's it's enabled space travel which is also do you like space travel i do like space travel and you know what? Eventually, we're going to ship Elon Musk into space and get rid of him. Like, that's that's just reality. That would be pretty good. And it's for that reason that airplanes are more significant culturally than atomic bombs. Because of their future potential to get rid of Elon Musk. Atomic what bombs if we can't did do that. <laughs> airplane, atomic bomb, Model T. Airplane, atomic bomb. Uh, yes, I can do that. Cause, like, cause I, I, you know, upon further discussion, further, I think ranking Model T above airplane is a mostly American centric viewpoint. I think they're extremely close together. Yeah, extremely close. This is actually how I did my my own personal list, where it mm-hmm. was obvious, like ten, nine, eight all very easy for me to figure out. Number one was easy. And then it was like, Oh crap, where do I rank all these middle ones? Cause it was like, okay. you know, we're just splitting minor differences here. So if I move over airplane, talk bomb model T, how do you feel about that? Yeah, that's good. Okay. So looking at this, a lot of 1920s inventions. Yeah. Um, 1903, 1908, 13, 27, 28, 29, 28, 27, 26, and then 45. <laughs> it's a good year for a decade, a good, a good decade for inventions. Yeah. And also for collapsing the, Great Depression. the economy. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> right before the Great Depression, things were booming. It's the industrial era. Like everybody wants to do and be more. And suddenly everything comes collapsing down and it's, it's real bad. Really and then bad. the grapes of wrath happens. The the rapes of wrath. Nope. What is that? I'm just All right, kidding. I'm gonna run down the final list here. Yeah, run it back. Number ten, we have the bra from 1913, uh, created by Mary Phelps Jacob. Admittedly, nine, never owned or worn one, but true. I see where it's significant. Yep. Uh, number nine, flash freezing food from Clarence Birdseye in 1929. Number eight is antibiotic slash penicillin from Alexander Fleming in 1928. 
Number seven is The Talkies, Talking Pictures from Warner Brothers, 1927. Uh, number six, The Magnetic Tape Recorder by Fritz Flumer, 1928. Such a good name, Fritz Flumer. Number five, The Model T, designed by Child Harold Wills and engineered by Joseph A. Gallum and Eugene Farkas, 1908. Number four, The Atomic Bomb, uh, created by J. Robert Oppenheimer, Leslie Groves, and others um, in 1945. Full team, yep. Uh, the movie Airplane from 1980, starring Leslie Nielsen. No, okay. Um, the Airplane, invented in 1903 by Orville and Wilbur Wright. Orville, um, Redem- Orville Redenbacher and Wilbur Wright, right? Uh, of nope, popcorn those are fame. Different, nope, different guy. <laughs> uh, number two, the television, arguably invented by Philo T. Farnsworth in 1927. Professor Farnsworth, television, yep. anyway. Yep. Um, and then finally, number one, the long weekend... Created by Henry Ford in 1926. Thank you, Henry Ford. And you should have gone further. Thank you. You. I'm not sure how I want to say this. Thank you to future advancements of what the work week and weekend will become. Also including yeah. universal basic income. Definitely not going to be attributed to one person. Mm, yeah, probably not. But, you know the UAW as a whole for kind of forcing the issue to make it more relevant could be attributed. And you might credit the leader of the UAW with that. Again, I work in automotive, so this is directly relevant to me and I'm not, I'm not advocating for or against it. I'm simply stating what they're asking for. I'm advocating for a four day work week. Well, yeah, so am I, but that's for them specifically. Does them having a four-day work week result in me getting a four-day work week? Probably not for a while. No, but, you know, uh, they've done scientific studies. Four-day work week, better for productivity, actually, than sh- a five-day work week. It should be noted that in a, in some of these studies, the four-day work week is four tens, not four eights. And people are still doing 40 hours of work. They just also get another day off. Well, the, 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 the study stuff that I have read, the, the, a 32 hour work week, actually more productive than a 40 hour work week in most cases. Yeah. I, I think in depends on what industry are you in? What contributions do you have? Sure. Not, not a one-to-one across all jobs. Certainly. It'll be a while. And also of note for the UAW, they're advocating for 32 hour work week being paid like a 40 hour work week and then yes. considering working overtime on top of As that, past. which means they're going to still be working those hours. They just want to get paid more, which, yep. you know, again, this is what they're asking for. Get your money. So anyway, thanks for taking the time to listen to us argue. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. So it was a fun episode. It was a little bit different than our usual. Yeah. That was a good conversation. It took some research, but it was interesting. Spent a good amount of time, and I feel like I'm kind of a history nerd, so I like hearing about stuff like this. And like I said, Henry Ford or Greenfield Village, not that far from here. I've been there. I enjoy going to those museums. I think they're great. But anyway, our next episode in uh, two weeks. uh, Josh, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to be talking about the next time? Yeah, it's been a while since we did a TV-based one, so we're going to go back to the old television. Some might say is the most culturally relevant invention in the 
under since 1950, but you know. But not us, because um, we think it's the second most. <laughs> um, and we haven't done a decade-based thing in a while, so we're going to combine those two ideas, and we're going to say uh, the best TV shows of the 2010s. Also, haven't done one about the 2010s ever, so yeah, we're, we're going a little more recent, and we're going to talk about our favorite television from the 2010s. From 1900 so. to 1950 to the 2010s. Pretty big Maybe. jump. Yeah. Maybe uh, we should have a top 10 best things to do on a weekend. Ooh. Maybe it doesn't have much of a ring to it, but that's okay. I, I think. Top 10 bras. The Wonder Bra. I don't think this is one that we can contribute to in bra. significant I'm, I'm fashion. I'm trying to think of what other bras are actually called. Like that, you're. Bra- bralettes. Bra. Barack Obama. <laughs> nope. That's nope. <laughs> no. All right. Bad dad jokes. Okay. Um, the Joe Biden bra. No. Oh, no. What? No, I was thinking of uh, 80s, 90s California surfers. Sup, bra. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Bra. I'm not, I'm not West Coast enough for that. Neither am I. But. Anyway, I I think as far as getting back to the actual next topic, the 2010s TV, the way we discussed it is things considered will be produced or aired during that time frame. Yeah. If a show started outside of that, we're only evaluating the stuff that happened during that era. So 2010 through 2019. Yeah, we, we need to we need to come up with some kind of rules. We can't say like, well, The Simpsons aired in that time period. It wasn't good, but when The Simpsons was good, it was really good. But that's not germane to what we're really trying to talk yeah, about here. Really so we're only considering the topic. We're only considering television that aired during the 2010s. Perfect. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. We'll we'll complete another list. We are capable. We can do it. We are list we have machines. The technology. Okay, well, thanks for your time again, Josh. And, and I guess un- until next time, I've been Scott. And I've been Josh. Was that a question? I've been Josh. And remember, with a little practice, you can argue your way into a friendship. Take care, folks. Apparently it is World School Milk Day. Sure. But I'd believe that. They have all kinds of dumb days. Lunch is 100% you free milk? this year. Are you pro-milk or are you anti-milk? Uh, neutral? I don't know. I'm the, Will you the drink a glass of hotel? milk? Would you, would you drink a glass of milk? It's pretty rare, but sure. Okay. I think there are very few benefits to milk when it comes to you know once you stop growing while you're growing bone health apparently there is some some need there but afterwards it just becomes a kind of fatty drink i would say chocolate milk amazing yeah chocolate milk delicious uh my my wife for example will eat cereal without milk because she hates milk oh and that no my wife eats cereal with milk frequently it is a I will staple in also our eat cereal with milk. It's delicious. Some cereals, I would say, are inedible without milk.
Um, yeah, I could see that. Grape nuts. You can't eat grape nuts without milk. It's yeah. It's like my, eating gravel. And my wife microwaves grape nuts. What? Warms them up. That's weird. It's kind of like um, what's it called? Malto meal? No. Yeah, I, I know what you. I know what you mean. I think malto meal. I think is the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I had. I have not eaten that since I was a child. Mm. We have some, I think, but it's not something we prepare very often. I have not thought about the words malto meal in probably 20 years. 